So this week I was uh, trying to figure out exactly what I'd be preaching about, and honestly, uh, it was the hardest thing for me. I went through four different subjects before I really found something that the Lord kind of put to heart that made sense, and I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Because um, to me, it was, I'm going to be preaching about a little something that not a lot of people like to talk about, and that's history. I'm going to be talking about a lot of historical stuff today to kind of give us a proper understanding and perspective on what would under, we would understand as something very simple. So today I'm going to be talking about identity and confidence in God. So for me, I'm the kind of person who observes like the way things are. So to me, I look at the church and I look at the problems we have, I look at the kind of things that uh, are wrong. And to me, I, I kind of understood this week that uh, the church isn't as effective as it could possibly be because we don't really understand what it's like to be um, a prince or a princess of the kingdom of God. Our identity, something that we talk about, Tony's talked about it a few weeks ago with the throne and Jesus. But I look at it from the perspective that we don't really understand everything because we don't know what it's like to be a king. We don't understand that. In Canada, we have prime minister, and if he was to walk in here and boss us around, he doesn't even have the right to do that. We don't know what true authority looks like in Canada as a whole. There's nobody with true authority. Your boss has authority over you as long as you're under hours. As soon as you walk out of the building, he can't boss you around. Your parents, as soon as you move out, they're not supposed to, anyways, have authority with you anymore. So we don't really understand what it's like to have true authority or have somebody who has true authority over your life. Amen. And one of my things is history. I love history. When I was in college, I think I took every single class they had for history. I'm, it's one of my things. And I was looking at it from all my different classes. One thing was always clear. The king was the end-all, be-all of a society. You could judge what a nation would do, how it was running, and what it was like by the identity of that king. And the Bible is littered with comparisons to kings and what they did. You know, the Bible always tells us God is the king above all kings. But if we don't understand what a king was, it could do, or what it stood for, we can't really understand what it's like for God to be the king above all kings. It's just a word if, to us, especially since we don't have kings, and in the modern world, there's like what, maybe two countries with actual kings that do something? The most popular one is England, and even then, the queen doesn't really do anything. <laughs> so I want to start off by kind of giving you a 101 class on what it meant to be a king back in ancient near, like uh, the Near East, around the period of ancient Israel and a little bit towards uh, towards the end of when Jesus would have experienced it. So what was a king back then? Well, to start off, they were rulers, simply put. They were the ones that normally had the most wealth when the society was formed and became the ones with the most influence because they could pay people off and gain the, like, the right to rule. Baseline, that's what it was. Then they became they started mystifying it and making it more and more about lineage and godly rights 
and everything. And But baseline, at the beginning of every society, it was always the richest people that would become their kings, or the, the strongest, it's one of the two. So around the time that Israel would have been experiencing the world, kings had this thing called the, uh, the kind of a god-king complex, and that they would deify themselves very often, or if not deify themselves, they would become agents for the, the gods of their, of their nations. So they were making themselves untouchable to the people. They were legitimizing their role as king by saying, our gods specifically chose me. The ancient Egyptian king, the pharaoh, had legends, uh, propaganda essentially, that would make him come off as the reincarnation of Osiris, the son of Osiris, which was the big god for them, to give you an idea. The Persian kings, they were acted as grand priests to their gods. They even have um, uh, these scriptures that they have that would say that they would, like, as if from the perspective of their god, declaring that this king was their choice. Even in Jesus' era, that didn't go away. The Roman emperors had this title called Pontifex Maximus, which meant greatest priest. Uh, this is a title that even the Pope still has today. So it's not like it's gone. This is still very real. So these people were rich. They controlled literature. They controlled statues, art. They controlled everything that the layman would have come in con like contact with. And let's be real, we have access to information today but they didn't back then. So if the king made it look like he could fly, anybody had no reason to doubt him. They were depicted as mighty warriors often. You know, Darius, and uh, King Darius of, in, uh, in Persia, um, he had these ginormous walls filled with pictures of him like slaying lions with his bare hands. Like just to, for people to walk in and kind of understand that this guy meant business, and because everybody, you know, had no reason to doubt that he'd done that, these be people became like people with power and authority. They were considered empire builders. They were the greatest judge in their land. Solomon was a clear example of somebody who was seen as the greatest judge. You know, the, the, we have the verse that tells us, well, the chapter that tells us about the two ladies with their baby. They went to normal judges before that, and it escalated to the point where only Solomon could make the final call. But that wasn't just Israel. That was, every king was like that. They were the grand priests. They had godly authority, according to what they would tell people. They were also seen as shepherds. This iconography was very visible in Egypt, when they have the crook that would be associated with all the images of the pharaoh. They were considered the leaders as if the, sh the, the common layman was too um, ignorant or not powerful enough to lead themselves that he needed to be there or else they'd be lost. They were also, like I said, warriors. These people would often go to war for the only reasons of money, propaganda, and reputation. If they were able to subjugate another nation by beating them, their reputation would like, not only be cemented with their own people, it would, their reputation would spread, they would have fear, and they would become even more untouchable. So these people continuously tried to expand their kingdom just to make sure that they could have a death grip and have the most luxurious lifestyle that they could possibly have. Until the last few hundred years, humanity lived, lived in a very mystical world. 
You know, we look at uh, in the 1300s, we still believe that dragons existed and that griffins and all that were a part of the normal world. And the Catholic Church actually pushed those things because a lot of the priests didn't have an education in the Bible, which just kind of doesn't make sense, but that was what it was. And these kings used that to their advantage by using any means of propaganda that they could. Town criers, like I said, art, statues, everything that people could understand, they would push because they, they knew that if they could make people believe that they were stronger than they were, nobody would ever come against them. And it came to the point where the mere word of a king was deemed as law. The first sets of laws we have were made by kings. And um, so yeah, like, to the point where their property could be used as a sign of their, of their power. In Genesis, we see that. In Genesis 41, verses 41 to 43, this is the excerpt where Pharaoh kind of crowns uh, Joseph. He says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set over you all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. So in short, the king with just his property was able to make everybody bow and subjugate themselves to the king. Just because he put a ring and a nice, you know, a nice t-shirt on a guy, rode, him, rode with him and was like, yeah, this guy, there's only me that's greater than him. That's it, doesn't matter what, who was in charge before. The king decided, that's it, that's all. He didn't have a council, he didn't have anybody, he decided then, and it changed, and that's it. He could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and with whomever he wanted. He controlled the armies, the wealth, the laws, the literature, the art, everything. And he would make it so that his, the, the lives of his subjects were essentially formed to be around what he was doing. So they could do whatever. And then God comes and tells us, like in Psalm 47, 7 to 9, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Even back then, God was establishing himself. Everything you know, all these people that you have to fear and respect, and you know, they could decide that you're dead within a minute, and that would just be that. I am greater than them. In Psalm 103:19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all, every nation. Back, back in the days, uh, you see in, in the Old Testament, the, uh, yeah, in the Old Testament, they often went back to Egypt because Egypt was the strongest kingdom, and they were for 4,000 years. Nobody dared to fight against Egypt because they knew that their armies were that strong. The king, the king there was that established and that strong. And yet God goes and he says, I'm, his sovereignty rules over all. Philippians 2, 10 to 11 keeps pushing that. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under, the, and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Me, the specific part I wanted to share there is in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. 
Every king that has ever been, every authority that has ever been will bow to Jesus. So my thing that I was trying to talk about today was identity. And I believe that when we understand that God is the king, he's greater than every king we've ever experienced on earth, that changes this tune a little bit when we start thinking about the fact that we're children of God. Because we're not just children of God, we're children of the king of kings. And that means that, like I said earlier, we're princes and princesses. And that means that there's authority and power. In 1 John 12, 13, he says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Galatians 3.26, For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We're children. We're heirs. We're the next in line. Now, we won't actually get to be the rulers of heaven because that's not how the, you know, things are going to end up being, but that does mean that we have the authority of our Father. Amen. And that means that through that authority, when we come into contact with situations where we might be afraid or we might think that we don't have the capabilities or we might not have the confidence, we have to be able to look at ourselves and be like, I'm not me. I'm a representation of what my father is, and I should never fear anything because of what he is. We're heirs to the throne. And that in Romans 8:17, it confirms it. I'm not just saying that. It says, if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Galatians 4, 7, again. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Ephesians 2, 6, 7. There's a lot of verses I'm sharing, but it's just to tell you that it's more than just one spot in the Bible that tells us this. And when it's confirmed again and again, then I think we should really understand it's more than just a truth. It's a fact that God was very much trying to push through. Because if more than one author was in, like spiritually inspired to write that down, it's got to be important, right? In Ephesians 2, 6, 7, it says, And raised us up with him, seated us with him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Here's a comparative in the real world. If we're heirs to the throne, then we're seated next to God. Imagine a throne room. There's God, Jesus, and we're sitting on the throne next to him. When the enemy tries to come in and comes audaciously, I might say, into the throne room, trying to insult you, trying to belittle you. You've got Jesus and God sitting right there. Do you really think they're going to just let it happen? If you're confident in him, then you know that your strength is with the two bigger guys, right? (laughs) You know? My dad's bigger than your dad. Figuratively and spiritually, it's exactly what it is. If you have faith in God, he's going to speak up for you. In Revelation 17, 14, it says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him, as they are called, and chosen and faithful, we are victorious with Christ. 
This verse was specifically talking about the beast and the harlot of Babylon, which is an end-time prophecy. But if we're victorious with Christ on them, which is supposed to be the end of the world, I think we're victorious in Christ in other situations that would be rather insignificant comparatively. Like seriously, if, if, if God's telling us, hey, you're with me, we win, the end of the world is good, we're all going to be in heaven after, it's going to be great, then I think that your job, your relationships, your friendships, you know, any kind of insecurity, your finances, whatever, that's, that's easy. For God. For God, well, of course. <laughs> it's easy for God. And by understanding what it means to be free in Christ, and through what kind of authority we wield, true confidence and faith will come. In my life recently, I've had these uh, situations that kind of pushed me into a corner, and I had two decisions to make. I either let myself get overwhelmed again, because that's my thing. I kind of have a hard time with being humble enough to let the Lord kind of guide me. I tend to think that I'm strong enough to do things my way. Or I could stop complaining for once and let God do his thing and, you know, be victorious. It wasn't an easy decision, but I did finally do that. And when I did, the Lord showed me um, miraculous growth. Specifically, this was concerning my job. Um, I went from being the last on the list to one of the top performers in two weeks. And that went just because I decided to stop arguing with God and being like, you know what, I know that you're greater than this. I don't have to be worried. And through that comfort, I started being confident, which to me is my biggest struggle in life, is being confident in, enough in things. And I felt like by finally being able to put down my weapons and being like, okay, God, you're in charge, I was able to realize that being who I am is easy when I don't have to worry about anything else. Like, I really don't have to worry about whether people are going to like me or not. I don't have to worry about anything because I know God already won for me. I just have to follow suit. So I encourage you to make this more than just head knowledge, but heart knowledge, that you understand that you're not a victim to the world like the enemy tries to tell us. We're more than conquerors. We're victorious with Christ. So when God tells us that he loves us and that we're heirs, and the enemy comes and tells us that we're not enough, that we should be ashamed, that we're inferior to what we think we are, that we're, you know, not pretty enough, we're not strong enough, we're not, you know, outgoing enough, anything. It's a lie. Amen. And if you understand that God really is the one in charge, with full authority, mind you, more authority than any man has ever had, then I think that we should really be thankful and confident enough to walk into it. Think of it this way, like I used before, we're in a throne room. I used an example allowing the enemy to walk into the throne room. In real life, he wouldn't even be able to walk in because there'd be guards. What makes the heavenly throne room any different? Nothing. 
He's not allowed to be there. And you have authority. You can kick him out. You can literally be like, be gone. The guards will grab him, gone. It's, it's done. You don't have to worry about that. So why do we let ourselves be spoken to by the enemy as if we were equal to him, when in reality we're significantly higher than he is? So to, to end, I have two things that I want to discuss. One thing I want to ask you, what's stopping you from walking into your identity? What's stopping you from being able to say, here you go, here's my sword, do what you need to do, I trust you. Is it lack of confidence in yourself? Is it a lack of belief in your capabilities? Is it maybe a little bit of pride? Maybe you're scared because you haven't seen the miraculous things that others have seen and you don't know, you don't have faith that it'll happen for you too. This week, I want to encourage you to find the things that are stopping you from walking into your kingship with God. Because once you can tear down those walls, you're going to be walking into a whole lot more than just success. You're going to be walking into spiritual liberation. You're going to be walking into um, just confidence and faith. But like real faith, not the I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to let the miracles happen to those up front. Like, actual faith. Find those things. Pray about them. Confess to one another if need be. Sometimes it helps to be able to tell somebody. It gets the pressure off your chest and you can really walk forward. Amen. This is our identity. This is who we are. We're heirs to a heavenly realm. Amen. We're more than just people in a room right now. We're a family a royal family. So find those areas in your life where you've intentionally or unintentionally stopped yourself from walking into your life as a prince or princess in the kingdom of God. Tear down those walls. Pray in Jesus' name that you, you can be freed and really understand what it is to be an heir to the kingdom. So I'm going to finish in prayer. Thank you, Father, for every single person in this room. I pray, Father, that you would unleash peace and wisdom and courage in every single person here. That they would come to understand what it means to be truly righteous and in their inheritance of the kingdom of God. Father, I pray that you would tear down the wall, stopping them from getting into greater and greater things. Father, like I said before, blow courage into their backbones. Blow strength into their backbones. Let them be confident in who they are, that the world may not be able to push them aside. Father, I pray for growth, exponential growth this week. Let their hearts be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen.